Welcome to the BBB National Programs podcast, Better Series, where we will explore top-of-mind topics and self-regulation with business and industry leaders. Together, we seek to understand the leading trends and innovations that continue to push the envelope in today's marketplace. Hello, and Happy New Year. Welcome to BBB National Programs podcast series on data privacy. Here, we discuss major marketplace issues in the world of data privacy, from new regulatory developments to emerging technologies and new use cases. BBB National Programs is the home of a dozen leading national industry self-regulation programs focused on providing business guidance and enhancing consumer trust in key marketplace areas. Now, in the world of privacy, a lot is rapidly unfolding. Last year, the ballot initiative for the California Privacy Rights Act was passed, expanding on the rights provided in the California Consumer Privacy Rights Act. A lot of new technical changes are on the horizon, with Google, the owner of the Chrome browser, recently announcing that it would phase out third-party cookies in the coming years, and Apple making some changes to its iOS 14 mobile operating system that will affect the advertising ecosystem in Apple's mobile app universe. New technical controls are being proposed by researchers to help users opt out, and the Federal Trade Commission recently filed a lawsuit against Facebook regarding alleged monopoly practices. Over the years, for privacy professionals, we've often been faced with the idea of a perfect storm on the horizon that would shatter the world of data monetization as we know it. For instance, once there was a notion of do not track, a technical standard for opting out that was proposed in the 2000s. Later, when GDPR was on the horizon, it seemed like we were all presented with that winter is coming type moment. CCPA soon followed, and that looked like the statute would drastically change the environment even in the U.S. And between all those moments, there were data breaches, surveillance questions, misinformation events, and other threat events. Yet the storm never came. Today, with a lot of major legislative and technological changes unfolding, I want to discuss why this time that perfect storm might be approaching. Joining me to have that conversation are two great minds in the field. I wanted to introduce Christy Harris, who is a Director of Technology and Privacy Research at the Future of Privacy Forum, where she leads efforts on public policy surrounding ad tech, mobile apps, and other platforms. Colin O'Malley is the founder of the Lucid Privacy Group, which focuses on on providing guidance for startups and marketing tech companies on their privacy concerns. And of course, I'm Ayaz Minhas, and I work with BBB National Program's Digital Advertising Accountability Program, which focuses on privacy self-regulation in the digital advertising space. Christy and Colin, very glad to have both of you here today. Thanks, Ayaz. Thank you uh, for having me. It's nice to be here. Yes, hello, Ayaz. Thank you for having me as well. Excellent. I'm very glad that both of you are here today. So to start off, I want to pose this question for both of you. With everything happening today with with the CPRA, the Privacy Sandbox, global privacy control, with new lawsuits, and now a Democratic Senate, why is it different this time? Haven't we heard the story before that the industry that's dependent on the monetization of data is facing a serious environmental challenge? Um, well, I, as I will take back to your comment around the approaching perfect storm and say that um, while the perfect storm may be on its way, uh, I think we're getting, we've been getting rains from it and, and seeing the effects on the horizon uh, growing like a steady drumbeat mm-hmm. for many years now. And with the um, you know different changes in technologies and platforms and the, the legal uh, regulations in the U.S. and globally, I think that 
we are building to a crescendo that will have a far more significant impact on the industry. Um, so, you know, to stick with that analogy, things have been changing. They have been getting, um, you know, more uh, impactful on the ecosystem. And I think that what we're seeing now is just the impending far more significant impacts that, that are on the horizon. Certainly. Colin, do you have any thoughts on that? Sure. And uh, yeah, Christy, I love your, um, your <laughs> building on the rain analogy. Um, you know, take that further in, in the direction of, of water analogies. If we think about, um, you know, the, the, the flow of uh, innovation um, uh, around sort of monetization and digital media, I can think of it as sort of water that's looking for, you know, a points of entry. Um, and anybody who is a, is a homeowner or has ever lived in a home knows that water is really good at gaining entry where it can. Um, you know, for, for maybe 15 years now, we've been hearing of various threats to the digital media ecosystem, and in particular, the way that either from a policy or technology point of view, that marketplace operates. Um, and yet it seems that there's always been a way that clever engineers um, and persistent commercial actors can find ways around those um, those obstructions. I think we're hitting a point now where it's we're finally hitting the point of no escape, um, and we, we tend to think about these um, these these developments moving along um, three different sort of fundamental pillars. You have the the policy pillar where you have laws. You know, at first it was GDPR and the privacy directive that were really beginning to give um, the, the the ecosystem concern, but now we have this whole sort of global movement. Uh, of GDPR-like legislation all around the world, uh, including here in the U.S. <clears throat> with California uh, and, and other states. The other pillar is um, general market consolidation, um, which has uh, constrained especially the independent digital media ecosystem from acting outside of the sort of major sort of dominant actors in, uh, in, in, in that marketplace. Um, consolidation is actually extremely far along at this point. It's perhaps the, the most far along uh, of any of those pillars. And the third is sort of platform level um, controls, uh, which which transform the, the technical landscape and um, have the ability to constrain um, the ecosystem from engaging in sort of its basic sort of state management that is required for the current infrastructure of digital monetization. And we've seen uh, uh, blips of this in the past. Uh, you mentioned do not track, and there have been many other sort of um, uh, stepping points uh, along the way. But we're now at a point with um, with iOS and with Google Chrome, um, with with browser controls being significant enough, and across uh, uh, platforms that are widely distributed enough that they can no longer be avoided. Great, great. And thinking about those various. Uh, storm clouds, whether they're regulatory storm clouds or technological storm clouds, I think m many of these issues relate to ad tech. Now, Christy, you lead some of Future Privacy Forum's efforts on ad tech. So from my perspective, it seems that ad tech is such a fixture of the way that web, the web and apps are monetized that even if Chrome reconfigures a web environment through Privacy Sandbox, even if there's these legislative changes or there's action from the California AG, you know, the, the prosecutorial entities and um, in, with some of these government bodies, they can't bust everyone. So how do you think the new, the new environment will affect the way advertising takes place on the web? Is ad tech and interest-based advertising a permanent part of our internet experience, or do you think it's, it's actually threatened, or do you think it, it, it has to evolve? 
Well, I think you're right that there will always have to be some sort of an evolution. Um, you know, I don't want to, to overdo the analogies here, but I think this is very much of a dance and that uh, there are a number of different players that, that all have a goal in this ecosystem. Um, the goals of the advertiser don't necessarily change just because the regulations are changing. Uh, they still want to reach their customers. They still want to have their brand stories told. They want to have their their messages reach the appropriate uh, recipients in order to meet their goals. Um, so ad tech companies will still have to find solutions that, that help the advertiser, uh, but they also have to find a way to operate that is not going to be uh, a poor experience or something that will be a turnoff to the users who uh, are the recipients of those messages. Uh, I think it's true that uh, advertiser expectations may need to be recalibrated given the evolution of the technology and the re regulatory frameworks. I think that what we will probably see, and, and we are already actually seeing from a number of companies, um, some really innovative solutions that still preserve the ability to target advertising and to reach the appropriate audiences and not send a message to inappropriate audiences. Um, nobody wants to waste money and no user wants to be the recipient of something that's not appropriate for them. So we're going to probably start seeing a lot more contextual um, ad targeting mm -hmm. and uh, first party data being used, uh, publishers who have information about their users or even have a more uh, intimate relationship with their users sure. where there's a registration uh, component. Uh, there will be some sort of behind the scenes um, synchronization of information where maybe multiple publishers who know things about their users and they have common users between them are able to share their learnings in a way that allows them, um, you know, in a suite of sites or a publisher sites, be able to take learnings about uh, similar types of users to be able to target and appropriately advertise to to those users and and just being able to understand audiences there is increasingly technology and some really brilliant um, tools that are available for advertisers and for publishers to help them understand their audiences that may allow them to target advertising on sites or in mobile apps or different contexts without having to have the individual users provide robust information that may be um, something that they're not comfortable with from a privacy perspective. So I think the short answer to your question is that, yes, advertising and interest-based advertising and targeted advertising is probably not going anywhere. However, the means to accomplish that is going to have to evolve given the, the platform changes and the regulatory landscape and just the general consumer and and um, industry sentiments around the use of data in this context. Excellent, excellent. And pivoting just a little bit from that issue, I think one of the interesting technological changes that, uh, or, or technical changes that was proposed was, um, I heard about global pri global privacy control came up last year, which I understand to be a technical privacy control for CCPA that is incorporated in, in some of the um, privacy-focused browsers, and there's also a privacy, uh, excuse me, a browser extension that incorporates global privacy control. Um, that's my, my basic understanding of it. Colin, uh, based on what you know about it, what do you think about global privacy control, and why is it different from the old do-not-track standard, and how could it be more impactful? 
Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a fair summary of global privacy control. I, th- I think the in, in terms of how it's different from Do Not Track, but Do Not Track was a standard that became um, uh, was 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 um, being shepherded by the W3C and had a fairly ornate uh, standards process that was involved in setting its definition. Um, it was uh, it became actually quite complicated and granular in, in, in how its design unfolded. It also was sort of dragged out um, over a number of years uh, to the point where, you know, by the time the standard was approaching, you know, finality, it, uh, it, it seemed that the, that the marketplace and, and the policy world had, had moved on. Um, the long story short is that it, it, it never really was adopted. Um, and it, it was uh, never legally required. Um, global privacy control um, is very new, and we don't know where it's going to go. So it's possible that it will suffer a similar fate uh, to Do Not Track. But it has the potential to be uh, much more powerful for a couple of reasons. One is that, I mean, at least at this stage, there is no sort of open standards process. And there, there is, is uh, positive and negative um, about that, uh, of course, there there's no sort of ongoing discussion between industry and um, the folks that are behind global privacy control. Uh, it's possible that that will have um, unintended consequences uh, for, for consumers and, and, and for the marketplace and unintended policy outcomes. But it also means that it's unlikely to get dragged out in a W3C process that uh, uh, carries on for years and never goes anywhere. So that gives it the ability to execute much more quickly without sort of multiple uh, cross uh, sector stakeholders. The other piece is that it has the potential to be um, a, approved by the California Attorney General and become effectively a um, a, a standard that companies must legally uh, abide by in order to comply with the CCPA. That's a, a legal uh, benefit that the DNT never enjoyed. The other piece to keep in mind here is that, of course, we're talking about an initiative called global privacy control, not California privacy control. So there is the potential also for for this technical standard to loop into similar legal requirements um, all around the world, which would take it more in the direction of what Do Not Track originally aspired to become. Uh, So really uh, hugely uh, important potential implications, uh, depending on, on, on the policy context regionally, opt in or um, uh, opt out. Um, but all of that also is speculation at this point. At this point, all it is is, a, is, a, is an initiative that has been proposed that has uh, the support, at least verbally, of, of some pretty important actors in the digital media ecosystem um, with a lot of potential to make a pretty significant impact in the future. And I guess on that point about speculation, Christy, do you have any perspective on if global privacy control will be something that will be adopted by publishers? And if we're being totally honest, will it will it even matter if Google Chrome doesn't have this tool or this signaled incorporated into its own browser? Well, I would um, I'd say that uh, the global privacy control it's admittedly grounded in the ideas and the efforts and the learnings of Do Not Track. Um, I think the appeal of a binary browser switch that is similar to the Do Not Call, the predecessor that that um, was the impetus for the creation of a Do Not Track uh, standard, um, it's undeniable there. But it's also I think unrealistic for Do Not Track to or global privacy control to be able to offer a single on-off um, 
Do not call was tied to a phone number, mm -hmm. not a person. Right. Uh, do not track was tied to a browser. And global privacy control is being developed in the same way. Um, I think that uh, targeting advertise targeted advertising, however, is an aim to reach a person. And um, I think having legislation that supports and even encourages tech innovation for a consistent approach in this area uh, without being prescriptive of the, the specific technologies, it does add an air of credibility for ad tech companies. Um, I think we should also keep in mind that I think one of the, the main uh, nails in the coffin for the do not track effort was when browsers adopted the standard included it as part of the, the options in the actual browser, but then set the default to be on. And I, mm. I think that, uh, you know, it, it's important to, to note that the defaults matter. Um, so yeah. Settings matter for a reason. Users don't go out of their way to make significant changes to the settings when the experience isn't significantly uh, or detrimentally impactful. And that, um, you know, technology is, is amazing, um, but the users that are being bought and sold may not be comfortable with how intertwined their data is in the, the funding of the market uh, with little demonstrable benefit to themselves. Um, so a patchwork of often cumbersome or limited controls that, that are available now um, probably won't make it long term, they're, they're not going to survive scrutiny. Um, so there's a need to have something similar to the, the spirit of a do not track or global privacy control. But I, uh, I think the devil's going to be in the details and those details are going to be the defaults. Um, and I think that's something that we're going to have to very carefully watch companies that are operating in the, these spaces, whether it be the publishers and the platforms are going to need to be very careful about how they implement these standards to ensure that um, you know, they're making decisions that are consistent with what their users demand, uh, that the messaging is clear, and that there is you know, significant transparency to ensure that, that it doesn't fizzle in the same ways that do not track it. That, you know, be careful of, learn the lessons that uh, are, are there to be seen from do not track and let's make sure that we don't make those same mistakes. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and Colin, I, I want to pivot back to the point that you made about market centralization. I think in the privacy conversation generally, one of the things I find interesting is large market players making unilateral but impactful decisions. Now, Chrome and Privacy Sandbox is one example of this, but I think the other big example is iOS 14, where to sum it up, I, as I understand it, that version of the operating system will require opt-in consent for Apple's advertising ID. Now, Colin, from your vantage point and looking at your stakeholders, how has the market reacted to iOS 14? And do you have any thoughts about that and general market consolidation or market power in this space, especially in light of um, the lawsuit against Facebook as well? And especially in light of, I think, even today or last week, the British Competition and Markets Authority, they're looking into privacy sandbox for um, for uh, for marketplace fairness reasons. So thinking about iOS 14's impact and just the larger the notion of just of just um, unilateral market impact um, with some of these deci these decisions from some of the large players. So, so there's a lot that uh, that goes into this, and, and and the implications are 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 far reaching. You know, I, I think. 
that there, the, the fact that the market has consolidated so much to the, the point that we're at right now um, is, is, um, is, is not good for the internet. It's not good for the consumer. It's not good for, um, for, for uh, digital media companies and content um, uh, publishers for, for a range of reasons. I mean, one is simply that you have all of the market leverage sitting in the hands of a, of a handful of companies, really two dominant companies at the moment, um, with a, a few other sort of uh, enormous companies looking to come into that game. But there used to be a large and very vibrant um, ecosystem of many hundreds of third-party companies that provided um, uh, choice and options and just a reduction of market leverage. You see this actually in some of the competition lawsuits right now. Um, the, the in effect, sort of added just at a, at a basic price point level um, that, the, um, that the dominant players are able to extract as a result of them owning uh, sort of and really dominating the entire ad tech ecosystem um, uh, from from beginning to uh, to end, but when it comes to, to policy decisions and and sort of declaring um, privacy uh, standards and controls unilaterally, you know, I mean, to I have to say, to a certain extent, I I understand where this is coming from, and I, I think you know one piece here is simply the um, the complexity of this is sort of explosion of consent and notice um, uh, regimes that we're seeing all around the world coming from uh, legislators and regulators, regulators uh, setting policy that is sometimes you know, in conflict uh, with, with, um, uh, with other regulators, um, you know, regional uh, differentiation, browser disclosures, iOS disclosures, disclosures that are, that are um, uh, that required um, in Android. Um, I mean, in many cases, we're looking at the consumer holding the bag here and being utterly baffled, right? right? That there are, you know, n number of ways to disclose the same practices um, at, uh, at at widely divergent levels of granularity. Um, they're engaging with their phone or with a website to consume content, not to um, come to understand in a detailed manner the sort of supply chain of the digital media ecosystem. Right. Um, they're being asked to make decisions that are. Um, you know, uh, extremely complicated. Um, and, and so I think that, that, that some of these platforms are looking to, um, uh, to streamline these decisions and make them consistent for the consumer, number one. And number two, was, as we saw with the DNT um, process, um, you know, the, the industry, the attic industry in particular, has at times really seemed intransigent um, and unmovable in terms of um, their willingness to make substantive adjustments and, and at, at times take a commercial hit to ensure that the um, uh, privacy demands of consumers in the marketplace are honored. And so these platforms are um, sometimes making their own independent decisions to say, listen, notwithstanding what you want or what you'd like, we simply need to impose these controls in order to ensure that, that privacy commitments that we ask you to make are going to be upheld. So I understand all of that. Um, at the same time, you know, <laughs> these platforms also have advertising ecosystems themselves that they own and control and in some cases dominate. Um, so when they're making privacy-based decisions that have massive implications and aid and abet further market consolidation, you know, we have to keep that in mind um, as well. And we can't, we can't be blind to it. Um, I, I can 
you know, I can tell you with, with respect to um, the, the ad tech industry and how they're navigating this behind the scenes, um, the, the fact that the, the iOS and Google Chrome in particular have made the changes that they've made, you know, Chrome deprecating third-party cookies over a period of two years, iOS making IDFA, something that you can only uh, request on a one-time basis and it's opt-in now. You know, those two changes in and of itself have probably had uh, more impact on the way that the ad tech ecosystem will align and where the industries will um, will evolve than any of the other factors that we've talked about, including the GDPR. And it's simply because the the digital media ecosystem and the ad tech ecosystem that powers it has built its entire infrastructure on state management at the device level. Um, all of its targeting, but also all of its basic attribution, its frequency capping, um, its machine learning systems have all been designed around having some um, uh, device level ID, whether it's cookie-based, um, you know, a, a statistical ID or a fingerprint, um, or a mobile operating system ID um, as its basic currency, and then all of the capabilities are built around that. Uh, Chrome is the dominant uh, browser for uh, for desktop and mobile, um, and uh, IDFA is the dominant ID for the um, advertising ecosystem and native um, uh, uh, mobile systems. And both of those changes effectively make those environments go dark uh, for the for the ecosystem. So that is extremely serious and is going to be driving a substantial amount of reconfiguration and further consolidation across the marketplace um, over the coming um, this year, really will be the year that that begins to arrive and force the uh, force the changes um, that we've been waiting a long time to see. I'd love to build on that for a second, if you don't mind. Um, one of the things that I, I would like to, to note of all the criticisms that, that there may be about Apple making these changes to the IDFA and, and forcing apps to get opt-in consent in order to be able to receive that identifier, um, one of the, the benefits that comes of this is the opportunity for publishers and the, those apps to actually present a value proposition for the collection of data. Mm -hmm. uh, previously, users would have to actually care and go out of their way to try and find information about what an app did or why this, this practice was happening. You know, why is this information being collected? Is it being used for advertising? And, you know, for all the, the potential impacts to the ad tech ecosystem, if users don't actually consent to it, um, it it's also notable that this is um, an opportunity for those publishers to explain why they feel the need to be able to track individual users in that way. Um, I think that it maybe isn't a perfect solution, that there are likely to be um, enhancements to the way that this is implemented. Um, there are you know, legitimate concerns from publishers around the amount of space and the opportunity to present these, um, you know, value statements. But I, I think we will probably start to see very quickly how publishers are able to um, take this new limitation and turn it into a benefit for them. Um, if users understand why this information is collected, they may actually find this to be a good thing. Um, you can build trust with your user base and, and 
have a relationship that allows for the, the use of information for a better user experience, as well as to allow advertisers to reach their audiences. And, and I think it's, um, it's notable that Apple could have said, turn off IDFA entirely and uh, use the, the toggle that was already available in the limit ad tracking in previous versions of iOS and just enable that as a default um, versus what they've actually done, which is have it turned off until the app actually needs or attempts to collect the IDFA, at which point uh, a notice is presented to the user. Um, so I, I, you know, of all the criticisms that are out there, I think that there should also be consideration of the, the benefits of the decisions and the direction that, that Apple chose to go uh, in IDFA. What? Uh, well, that's a, that's a, so can, can I, yeah, yeah, please, please. Can call. I yeah. uh, uh, address that as well? I, mean, I think this is, um, I, I, I totally agree uh, with, with everything that, that, that Chrissy said as, as per usual. I, I think the, the, the interesting thing, there is definitely an opportunity for publishers to take this as an opportunity to um, be more transparent and to leverage uh, potentially iOS controls to uh, ensure that consumers understand and are okay with 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 their handling data to monetize. I think that that's going to have to require, though, um, Apple being receptive to engaging with the digital media ecosystem and um, uh, and uh, evolving these systems to ensure that they meet the interests of um, uh, of consumers, most importantly, um, but also the application developers that make the iOS platform a, a system that consumers enjoy using. In other words, without good applications on your iPhone, your iPhone will be a lot less appealing. Well, very good. And uh, I think... Um... You know, thinking about those major those major marketplace changes that are taking place and the dominant players driving those, and thinking about the kind of unknown space that that's going to create, and it is an unknown space. Now that we're entering a new Biden administration, do either of you have any thoughts about one, if there'll be a federal privacy law, or two, if there'll be any 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 pressure from the Biden administration, or or any just any legislative action generally? Um, uh, that legislative action or regulatory action that'll affect this industry now that now that we're having a, a change in government. I think there is increasingly mounting support for baseline privacy legislation, at least in the U.S., uh, if for no other reason than to stave off the the piecemeal privacy requirements of varying degrees in in each individual state. Uh, right now, California has basically set the bar for um, where we're seeing states that are trying to copy or build upon what they've already implemented. And, you know, we've already seen how difficult managing multiple different jurisdictions, you know, nuanced requirements can be, um, you know, in the, the, the security and the data breach legislation that, that, that companies have been dealing with for years. Um, the increasing complexity of managing different state requirements uh, is a daunting proposition for ad tech companies, and I I can't see how um, you know companies would want to have to to embrace that sort of a solution. Um, that said, what the baseline privacy legislation could be at a federal level is hotly debated, and uh, you know personally, I hope to see that it's something that we'll see. But um, I, I also don't have any illusions that 
it's an easy lift. Uh, I think a new administration with uh, a focus on this is a good thing for consumers. Um, I think it may be a, a tough pill to swallow for some companies uh, because the, the status quo is easier to, to stay with, but I don't think that I don't think that this is changing. Um, I don't think that we're going to be able to say that that having no legislation or or uh, you know having only California as the, the the state with significant privacy legislation that affects ad tech um, is a realistic future. I think we are seeing many states that are trying to do the same or or similar and. Um, I don't think that there's any stopping that. Um, so the choices become: Do companies want to deal with piecemeal solutions that you know even even going from you know GDPR and US, it was difficult enough for companies to be able to segregate businesses and technology to be able to com to accommodate the the differing requirements. Uh, to take that down to a state level is um, I, I I can't even imagine being in charge of of a tech team that would have to build something that could accommodate that in any um, legitimate way that, that could be, you know, demonstrated as um, a compliance solution. Um, so, I mean, I'd love to hear Colin's view on this, but I, I suspect that it, it's probably not unrealistic to say that, that most folks in this space hope for a baseline privacy legislation. And I think the debate will be what that baseline is. Is it California uh, or is it something else? Colin, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think that we have needed baseline privacy um, legislation in, in this country for, um, for a long time. And, and at this stage, it is, um, uh, <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit embarrassing, frankly, that um, as as you know, comprehensive uh, uh, data protection uh, standards uh, are growing all around the world. We are so far behind. Um, I, I think that we uh, have, as an industry, the digital media ecosystem has only in the last sort of year or two, I, I think, uh, come to that place where they they also agree that that we need comprehensive um, legislation. As Chrissy said, there's uh, still hot debate about exactly where the line should be set of that legislation, but that's coming from a number of places. One is just looking at the at the, at the tea leaves from around the world. It seems that it's inevitable, and, and the industry may as well be a part of, um, of the dialogue for um, uh, how how that line should be set. The other is, you know, the the proliferation of various state laws. You know, nobody wants a sort of data breach legislation kind of equivalent for privacy laws where, you know, 50 states have 50 different standards. Um, so, and that really is historically the, the only reason we get comprehensive privacy laws is, um, you know, we saw this in email, for example, with the, with the spam acts, um, you know, once companies get really impatient with a, uh, with an explosion of state standards, then, then they'll finally concede to a national standard provided that it has preemption. And I think that process is likely to unfold here, um, as as well, I think the the new sort of unified government of the Democratic Party um, it probably doesn't do much in the way of determining whether or not we're going to have privacy legislation. The at least in concept, privacy legislation is a pretty bipartisan priority. 
but it does probably move up in terms of you know strictness the the floor of of where that line will be set in the legislation. Um, I, I think that the 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 holding um, factor right now really is just going to be how distracted the country has to be, um, how distracted the Congress is going to be. Right. Uh, it, it's we have so many other. Um, you know, huge issues as a country right now, um, economic and public health and, um, you know, uh, figuring out sort of how to, um, uh, to, to sort of repair, um, you know, the, the, the damage that's been done, um, especially since, uh, since March of last year. Um, but I think that, that the, it's going to be hard to get a lot of um, bipartisan attention um, on this particular issue, at least in the first half of this year. Now, as we go into the second half of this year, and um, even more especially in the first half of um, 2022, you know, maybe maybe we get there, or maybe independent, you know, state movements will, you know, uh, come online more quickly, and and then you know, politicians can get it together pretty quickly um, when uh, when when preemption <laughs> becomes uh, necessary. Great, great. And, you know, I think you, you brought up a really good point about just how much the world has changed since March and, and you know, how that will affect whether or not uh, baseline data privacy legislation will be a priority. And on that point, as both of you being people that think about privacy a lot, um, how do you, do you guys have any general thoughts about how the post-coronavirus age will impact privacy? Uh, you know, I, I my feeling is that... Um, there's going to be a new emphasis on health monitoring, biosecurity, the collection of biometric data. You know, while mobile while mobile app contact-based uh, tracing was a failure, I, I do think it's going to be interesting seeing how society changes in the post-coronavirus era and just how data collection around society changes now that we're traumatized by the experience of a pandemic. Do either of you have any thoughts about how privacy is going to change as a result of the coronavirus that, that you'd like to share? Um, I can say that uh, FPF has done a number of different uh, papers, workshops, efforts on uh, privacy and pandemics. So this is an area that we've been watching very closely. Um, I love the idea that there's a post-pandemic era that uh, we will actually get to be back to normal at some point. So thank you for that optimism. Um, I'm personally most interested in seeing the the overall perspective changes um, and the sentiments around privacy. Um, what has become very clear is that there is a desperate need for information. Um, you know, I hate to use the word, but you know, this is unprecedented, and there is you know, in order to maintain some level of normalcy in society and to try and um, preserve lives, to save, um, you know, some semblance of, of a society that we all want to be able to move about and, and live, um, there is a desperate need for data to be used to research and to be able to provide the learnings and assurances that, that we need. Um, I, I don't mean to be cliche about it, but it, it is very interesting to me that uh, there are individuals now who obviously want to provide more information if the exchange is that they will be able to do things the way they want. You know, if I want to go eat in a restaurant, 
Do I need to allow somebody to take my temperature? And am I okay with that? Because now it means that I get to go and do something that I want to do. Um, similarly, there's uh, we've seen that there are places where information is collected for one purpose, and it turns out that it is um, incredibly valuable for another purpose. So secondary uses of data, I think, are going to be um, have to be reconsidered and how we find a way to ensure that those secondary uses that we can't even comprehend right now, uh, that those are preserved for um, instances where they're necessary. Um, we, we see incidental things around. One of my favorite um, anecdotes that I have seen out of the coronavirus was the um, proliferation of reviews on uh, candles on a website where yeah. purchasers who were complaining that they the smells on the candles were non-existent. And it turns out that one of the most uh, prominent symptoms of coronavirus was loss of smell and taste. And this is a place where absolutely nobody expected to find information or diagnostic type information on a you know global, global pandemic. And it turns out that that was actually pretty key information. And, uh, you know, I, not that I have a, a, a real world use for that, but it's, it's striking to me that there are places that there that we find value in data that we never would have thought of previously and how individuals will become more comfortable with the use of their data um, for the greater good and for individual good. Um, I think that we're at a, a point where there's an evolution of you know, general sentiments and um, I, I'm fascinated to see how this actually plays out in a post-pandemic world, um, how we continue to uh, allow for uses of data, but still protect them and uh, you know, do these things in a responsible manner. How do we make sure that the individuals or the entities that are using this data do so responsibly um, to, to meet everybody's goals and, and uh, still maintain privacy? All right. Well, as we aim toward getting to the post-pandemic world, there's going to be a lot of really interesting issues that come up in the in the realm of privacy broadly. And um, it's great that we have smart people such as yourselves thinking about thinking about these topics when we finally do get to that place where where we can be happy the coronavirus that we're all vaccinated and the coronavirus is behind us. Well, I, I do think we can leave it at that for this discussion. Uh, Christy and Colin, it's been absolutely wonderful having you here today and, and hearing from thought leaders in, in our industry, such as yourselves. I really want to thank you for both joining the podcast today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Um, I, I very much enjoy hearing from uh, folks like yourself and, and Colin and getting the different perspectives here. So thank you very much for uh, inviting me. I, it's, it's been a great discussion. Yeah, this was fun. Ayaz and, and, and Christy, always a pleasure and, and look forward to continuing these dialogues uh, for a long time to come. Thank you both. Well, this is wrapping up the second in a new privacy-focused series of podcasts from BBB National Programs. If you're interested in reaching out to learn more about some of our organization's work on data privacy self-regulation, our organization's contact information should be in this podcast page. And if you're a privacy professional and you have your own hot topic to discuss, please feel free to reach out to us, and we'd love to have you as our guest. Thank you, and have an excellent start to your 2021. 
You just enjoyed the Better Series podcast. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To learn more about our other shows, visit betterbusiness.blueberry.com. That's betterbusiness.blubrry.com. Follow us on Twitter at BBB underscore NTL programs. Send your comments and ideas to podcast at BBBNP.org. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB national programs or its affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Blueberry's Terms of Service.